that transition from Citrix to Google, um, where I changed sort of job function um, and industry and company sort of all, all at the same time, I, th- I think was motivated. My motivation for wanting to do that came from doing the MBA. Welcome to the MBA Jam podcast with your host, Avinash Bajaj. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the MBA Jam. This is Avinash over here. Today's guest, Richard Sharp, is no stranger. I have known him for almost a year now. The first time I spoke to him was when I was trying to get a new job. (laughs) I still remember both of us ended up on the phone for a very long time. We hit it off really well and since then we've had numerous discussions around big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence and whatnot. Richard has since moved on to something awesome. He's currently the CTO of Sazam. His past experience has largely been in engineering and product management companies such as Google, Intel, Citrix, AT&T and Yieldify. Richard has done his MBA from Cambridge University, before which he has also done his PhD in computer science from Cambridge. He's probably one of the very few MBAs I know who has done a PhD. We'll find out more about this on the show later on. Richard describes himself as the hardest working CTO in show business. (laughs) He's also a computer science director of studies at the University of Cambridge. And he's also a member of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Avinash. (laughs) Richard, how would you like to describe your journey in your own words? Um, sure. So I, I guess I started off as a, as a researcher, really, so computer science researcher. So I did, I did my PhD, um, and then I stayed in the Cambridge University Computer Laboratory as a researcher, although I was actually working for Intel at the time. Intel had this program where they put um, research labs in, in some of the uh, best universities, um, and they employed a bunch of researchers in there really to do academic research. So it was really about you know journal publications, conference publications, and so on. Uh, was sort of the primary objective of, of what we were doing. We were collaborating with academics in the computer lab to do that. Um, we just had access to industrial funding and an industrial salary. Right? So I was like, this is a sweet deal. And I had a great time, really, really enjoyed it. Um, but I, I guess one of the things is, you know, while I was doing the research, you know, we, we, you, you, you'd do a thing, you'd get to the point where you thought, you know what, this, this would be a great thing to actually take to market in, in, in some sense. And in research, that was kind of where you usually sort of stopped. And because it was also where, you know, you can no longer publish it in journals and conferences, typically, you know, like business takes over and commercialization happens and things go to market. And I kind of wanted to carry on the journey a bit. So um, when, you know, we've done some work in Intel research around virtualization, people have been working on, on virtualization. And, um, you know, the, the Zen hypervisor was being born in Cambridge. And, you know, that that project that Intel research had been involved in in Cambridge had been involved and got to a point where you know really had the opportunity to go to market um, through you know the company ZenSource that was created to sort of take take Zen and uh, x86 open source virtualization mainstream and, and commercial and I thought well this this is a great opportunity to actually do it then I'd always kind of wanted to uh, take something um, out of out of research into commercialization so I kind of couldn't resist it and uh, left left academia joined ZenSource the uh, which had which had spun out of the lab you know like a year or so earlier. Had a had a great time there. Was a was was an engineer led a led a team of um, sort of nine or ten engineers who were building the sort of user space tool stack on top of the Zen virtualization uh, product. That got bought by Citrix, so I went along into Citrix, um, continued the journey. Um, Citrix is where I did my MBA uh, at Cambridge. So I did the exec uh, exec MBA. 
um, there while I was while I was working, um, and then took on more sort of management roles really within Citrix and ended up running uh, the global engineering team for their virtualization and management division. Um, I think perhaps partly as a consequence of having done the MBA at that point, I thought you know I'm having a great time doing this, but I'd like to try something a little bit outside of my comfort zone around engineering management. Um, so I went to Google, left engineering and joined product. So I joined Google in product um, and was working on a project where we were basically building uh, financial comparison sites and integrating them directly into search on google.com. So we were doing like, I was responsible for credit cards, uh, mortgages, savings and checkings accounts. So completely different from what I've been doing before. Uh, learned a lot about, about product and other types of the business and a lot more of the commercial stuff. In, in that role was great. From there, moved to Yieldify. Um, Yieldify is sort of you know a growth growth stage marketing technology company uh, invested in by by Google Ventures and SoftBank. Um, there ran technology and products, and you know delivered a whole bunch of change projects there. And from there, moved on to Shazam. Right, Where I am now. Wow, I mean that's 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 a great journey. And like like you briefly mentioned, the reason um, that helped you know move to google moving from engineering management to product management now google also has a certain inclination to look for technical product managers in a sense so did that actually make it a slightly easier transition rather than going to um, a different company where they look for more business oriented product managers like not very technical do you think that made a transition easier um yes <laughs> uh, i'm sure that it did um, so, I mean, I've been looking at a number of, I've, I've been interested in the idea of moving into products for quite some time. Um, and I've been talking to a few people about it, you know, uh, maybe like the last few months I was at Citrix because I was kind of interested in the idea of doing it. And, uh, a lot of the companies I spoke to said, well, yeah, but you know, why would we hire you as a product manager? You don't have any experience in product management. Uh, we could hire you as an engineering manager. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a, it wasn't really having much, I wasn't really having much progress, and I was kind of thinking maybe I've actually left it too late in my career <laughs> in order to make this move without, you know, taking a, taking a huge step backwards in my, um, you know, salary and everything else. You got to, at, at that point when you got a family, you know, it's a difficult conversation to say I'm, you know, we're all taking a twenty percent reduction or fifty percent reduction in salary so I can go and find myself. My career is, is not a very uh, good sales pitch, so um, I kind of think well maybe I've left this too late, and it's, it's actually I'm going to do engineering management, which wouldn't have been a, a disaster, right? But yeah, I just thought it'd be fun. Um, but Google, on the other hand, they just asked me a bunch of technical questions, really. I mean, they asked me some exactly. product questions, but I, mean, I got asked to ask questions about Dijkstra's algorithm and complexity theory and stuff. <laughs> which, given I was still working as director of studies uh, for computer science at Cambridge, was 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 great, right? They're like sort of under, undergraduate algorithms type questions was what they're asking me, alongside some some business and strategy questions, but but quite high level ones. And then on the basis of those interviews, they took a chance on me, really, I, I guess, and said, well, yeah, come and come and be a product manager at a you know, reasonably senior level. And that was a great opportunity. And I really, really enjoyed it and learned a lot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so since you entered Google as a product manager, how did you accelerate your way that quickly? <laughs> um, because uh, I, I guess from a cycle of a product manager, it takes a while to transition to different phases, right? But you actually manage to do it much quicker than I think, or I, I guess traditionally it takes a longer time period to get to where you are right now. Yeah, I guess so. So I didn't, um, I wasn't at Google actually. I, I worked at one project um, in, in Google, which was around, you know, bringing 
financial comparison search um, into, into into Google search. And you know, we worked on that in a fairly broad way, and we, we actually got a lot of stuff integrated into into Google.com directly, which was which was which is really good. Mm-hmm. But I never got promoted at Google. I wasn't actually there long enough to get to get yeah. promoted uh, at Google because after after that project, I decided to leave and, and go and do something else. So I actually moved to Yieldify. So essentially, what I did, I think, in my career, although it was, it, it was never really planned this way, I just did what I thought was fun and you know took opportunities I thought looked, looked really exciting and interesting. But I guess what I did was, I mean, kind of at Citrix, I built up some sort of organizational leadership type experience. I was running teams of you know 120 or so people, global teams from an engineering perspective. And, you know, a lot of technical engineering management, software engineering management type knowledge popped out to Google (laughs) for a couple of years to kind of get a bunch of product management Mm. knowledge and experience, which was phenomenally helpful. Um, And then took on a role where you went back into more of a leadership role, uh, say at Yieldify, running technology and product. Um, So I could forward port, if you like, the, I suppose, some of the technical leadership that I'd done at Citrix from, you know, from that part of my career, alongside the product management experience that I'd now gained from Google to take on a role that was kind of doing both. Um, I think that's where, honestly, if I'd stayed at Google, it would have been quite difficult to progress back to the point I'd been at at Citrix. Uh, It would have taken a long time to to work through their internal promotion um, processes. Exactly. Um, So so I I think... And I, I think I, I guess that was how it happened, although it wasn't really planned in that way. Because you know, I tend to just want to work on stuff that's kind of fun and supports the family. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess you could almost say you almost hacked your way through the Google transition just to get that product management um, fundamentals in in the shortest time possible <laughs> before actually going on to a leadership role. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly right, really. I think if you look at my career, although it wasn't really planned this way, because I always like to try and you know just do things that are fun and interesting um, at the end of the day. But yeah, I suppose at Citrix, I gained some quite broad um, leadership experience running a global team of a uh, 120 or so um, in a in an engineering leadership position. Then I went to Google um, and did a couple of years product management experience uh, on a completely different project and a completely different you know, in, 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 in B2C. So it's a completely different thing. I didn't then stay at Google and try and work through their internal promotion process to get back to a level of seniority that I'd been at Citrix. I think that would have taken ages, probably, in hindsight. So I left Google at the end of that project and then um, went and worked for Yieldify instead and took on a role that was back to sort of leadership role, the CTO, running technology and product. Talking about Google specifically, actually, now, Google is really known a lot for its product management fundamentals and product management skill sets. And you know, some really popular people that have come out of it, Sundar Pichai, Marissa Mayer, I mean, they, they have been very product people and Google has a very good product management program. So did that allow you to actually get exposure to how product management is done right? Um, and then th- did that allow you to actually accelerate your learning further? Um, it did. I mean, I, I felt like I got a really good exposure to product management fundamentals uh, while I was at Google, sort of ways of thinking about the different aspects of products and what it what it means to actually be able to write good specs that kind of bridge what we're trying to do as a business to around what creating an MVP looks like around making sure that we're going to build that um, in a way which you know can be deployed and is, and, is, and is scalable and sort of bringing all those pieces together. So from my perspective, obviously from the engineering side, you know, I'd, I'd thought about those types of things a lot before, but now what I was getting to do was you know, interface more with other aspects of the business like legal and BD around partnerships, 
like sales around you know how we how this thing would go to market and what what the what the sales approach would be marketing you know, and pr and, and those types of other aspects so for, so for me getting a really good grounding in the foundation of how you sort of think about a project that encompasses all of those things together uh was i think what i what i really really learned um mm-hmm. at google on the flip side however in in google you are very much you know a cog in a larger machine so what i found actually by getting those foundations at Google and then moving to Yieldify, where there's no safety net, right? At a, mm. at, a, at, a, at a growth stage company, you're sort of doing everything, right? You do the PR, you make your own decisions about whether you think this is a good article to put out or not, and what, what do you think a good thing is to say? You know, you work directly with salespeople, you're visiting customers on an ongoing basis, both for sales engagements as well as just gathering product feedback from customers, right? You kind of do everything. so. Um, I actually found that transition to be really, really helpful for my career. Like I got a whole bunch of fundamentals at Google and really enjoyed um, employing them and having an impact in a sort of corporate setting. But you are very shielded in this corporate setting. You're like in the middle of a machine and you pop out from time to time to talk to a customer or you talk to someone in PR or you talk to someone in product council or whatever, right? And then having learned that and then go to Yieldify, I found that that was a great way to then accelerate the learning further because then you're actually doing it yourself. Like I say, there is no safety net. You make your own decisions about what you think is the right thing to do and take the consequences. And I, I think there I found that to be a, um, a really good learning experience. Uh, I think the, I guess those, those two things put together, I think, has probably created a greater trajectory than like in terms of my personal development and learning than I would have had had I stayed at Google for another two years, personally. Interesting, interesting. So how is it in Sazam right now? Uh, Shazam is great. So in Shazam, I've gone back into a technology role as, as it happens. Uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not running products. Uh, we, we've got a brilliant head of products um, at Shazam who I'm very very thankful for <laughs> as a as, as a peer. So I guess in some senses I've gone back into a um, a, a engineering or tech technology focused role. Although it is one that very much allows me to have a very collaborative relationship with with products and be you know very strongly engaged around. Um, you know what we're building our our users our partners etc both on the technology and the commercial side which is something that i really really value um within within the role although it is a a a technically focused role so yes shazam's going great some really exciting projects with beat shazam now we've got the highest rated u.s reality tv show hosted by jamie fox where people actually battle it out to recognize music and see if they can actually beat uh shazam at recognizing music and we've been building some really cool second screen uh, experiences for that, which has been an amazing experience and um, something I've really, really enjoyed. Um, we are fully integrated into Snapchat, for example. So, you know, increasingly we're uh, growing our, our, our user base further through other channels. So we're fully integrated into Snapchat. You can hold your finger on the camera screen to, uh, you know, recognize music. If there's anything playing, we're fully integrated into Siri. So you can ask Siri what music is playing around me. It'll Shazam the song, send the traffic to us. We're integrated into smart TVs, you know, OEM deals with smartphones, etc. So loads of really exciting stuff going on there, and also loads of opportunity with uh, with with data. Uh, you know, we've we, we found that we can use Shazam data to predict what's going to be in the top forty uh, in the next few months by looking at what emerging music people are Shazamming disproportionately highly. So you know, loads of opportunities to go and monetize that data and create products based on that on, on that data that we're really excited about so that's just the tip of the iceberg of some of the things that we're working on at the moment but loads and loads of really exciting projects plus you know it's got that kind of underlying association with music well when i'm not working usually what i'm doing is something music music related um so for me it's kind of the ideal uh, combination really so having a great time 
Yeah, that that's that's that sounds really interesting because you know Sazam made massive waves when it first came out because it it was unlike anything else, um, and it it solved a real problem, right? Because um, when people heard or listened to music or tuned somewhere, they were like, "Oh, we heard that somewhere, but goddamn it, we for God's sake, we can't remember what song it was." And Sazam made that really easy. So I was really fascinated to see where it goes next. And uh, you know, when I when I saw Sazam is going on TV, it's it somehow seemed like it's going backwards because a lot of the TV generation is moving to internet and smartphones. Which I was trying, like, kind of going back. It felt like that. What, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I mean, TV is one distribution channel. So, by doing sort of Shazam for TV, uh, you know, we can Shazam enable and have had a lot of success actually. Shazam enabling TV shows where we get great engagement. Um, from users who are watching the TV shows who shazam them for whatever reason, right, to get playlists if it's a music show or enterprises or get more information, get augmented reality views of a product or something that's maybe being sold on the, on the TV. Um, so, but, I mean, TV is just one distribution channel for video content, right? You can just as well shazam enable shows that are on Netflix, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, commercials that are being shown on TrueView. Or display advertising. If you know these things are all enableable with the same technology, the the idea really is that Shazam becomes um, an app that, beyond just discovering music, enables you to connect with the world around you in in the broadest possible sense. Um, I mean, with with TV, Netflix, video content of any type, posters, print media, um, anything that's spitting out audio. You know, we, we can attach digital experiences to all of the above. Uh, and I think actually, as the number of channels increases that that customers, you know, are, are communicated to through, um, as that as that number of channels in- increases, I think the opportunities to connect people to other experiences through their mobile devices uh, actually increases. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. And and you mentioned the 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 working relationship with Snap Chat. Now it's called Snap, I guess, and yeah. and with. Um, TVs and and also that that's really interesting. I'm I'm really intrigued to see where this whole world of augmented reality also goes from here and how our experiences get shaped by that. In, in fact, I just ordered my first set of virtual reality glasses. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it, it's it's very cheap. Uh, it's it's not you know along the lines of HTC Vive or Hololens or anything along those lines. It's actually more or less along the lines for Google Cardboard. <laughs> And that's going to come in a few days. Do you have one? Um, I, I have used a Google Cardboard. I uh-huh. did have one. Um, I don't have one at the moment. I have tried um, various augmented reality headsets. Okay. Uh, they're, they're a lot of fun, but so far I've felt motion sick in all of them. Um, but I think that's just me. I tend to get motion sick quite easily. So maybe I'll have to no, wait. I think... A- no, I think I think you're quite right because um, you know, as as you might know by now, I'm a, I'm a real podcast junkie. So um, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts, and nowadays my latest podcast is on AR and VR. Uh, and motion sickness is not uncommon. In fact, that is one of the biggest um, you know topics that come up in almost every single show. And they're talking about how the different manufacturers are doing their best to try and ensure that there's no motion sickness um, because running at 40 miles an hour on on a virtual reality glass and then standing on a still ground is not cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems to make, play tricks in my brain. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest problem. But I, th- I think the technology is amazing. And, you know, it does make perfect sense. 
to be able to have sort of headphones for your eyes so you don't have to carry massive screens around to, to get an amazing immersive experience, right? You can just stick a pair of glasses on and have it projected onto whatever you want. Um, it'd be able to bring the virtual world into your living room is really exciting stuff. So I think I think the, the, the technology is just going to open up amazing possibilities. You know, when, when, when we see it really going mainstream, whether it's this year, the next year through through smartphones, mixed mixed reality on smartphones. And, you know, at, at what point people start actually wearing augmented reality um, headsets or glasses or whatever? I, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but I mean the 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 potential is 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 enormous. I'm very confident that it that it will happen. It just makes no sense to to be buying you know, massive TVs when you could actually just project something um, into your eye directly without taking a huge amount of real estate on your wall, for example. Exactly, exactly. And there are some pundits, you know, making predictions of iPhone coming out as a clear glass because then it allows to have augmented reality experiences where you can see through the phone. <laughs> That'll <Yes>. be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, okay, so, so, so where you are right now, you know, your experience at Citrix has obviously massively helped you get to where you are your experience or, or knowledge uh, with the phd helped you get where you are and and experience different work areas i'm really interested to find out how did your mba experience help you did it help you at all and and in what way yeah i think it did help me um interestingly i don't think it was my my primary motivation for doing the mba it wasn't mm. actually that i thought it would help me with my career is because i was genuinely I thought it'd be a really fun thing to do and really engaging, which it which it definitely was. I think that was genuinely my main motivation for doing it was to learn new stuff and meet new people. Um, I certainly wasn't disappointed in, in those respects, and it definitely did help me with my career. Um, I think it gave me the motivation to some extent to want to broaden my career beyond engineering management. I mean, I was, engineering management was fine. It's it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of actually what I'm what, what I'm doing now, of course, um, and I love it. Uh, but it did give me a desire to want to go out and actually get experience of different things. I think I'd sort of wanted to do that a little bit, but I think by doing the MBA and meeting different people from different functions and seeing the world through their eyes a little bit more made me really, really motivated to go, you know, I really, really want to try something different now um, before it's too late. And I think that perhaps in some ways was the most profound impact that the MBA had in that it actually provided the impetus and the real motivation to say, you know, this is not just a, a theoretical desire. I'm actually going to go do this. I really, really want to go and get a job and doing something completely different, completely outside my comfort zone. And and that transition from Citrix to Google, um, where I changed sort of job function um, and industry and company sort of all, all at the same time, I, th I think was motivated. My motivation for wanting to do that came from doing the MBA, but also probably I think it was more possible to do that because of the MBA. Because I mean, Google, you know, say quite explicitly that their ideal profile, I guess, for product manager is PhD, MBA, computer scientist. <laughs> so um, it did tick all the boxes for that particular move as well, and probably made it possible. Perhaps it wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't done the MBA. It's hard to say. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's a good point. So, considering the fact that you were actually coming from a research background and you know, not not an uh, you know other kind of background like economics or banking or consulting. What are there any specific um, areas that you said? Look, in my MBA, I want to try and highlight or learn more about these specific areas because I'm coming from a very different background than most of your classmates or your peers. Yeah, I mean, I think I guess when I started the MBA, I was really interested in learning about some of the what traditionally called the harder functions, I suppose, rather than softer functions, you know, the 
how does finance really work? How does accountancy really work? Um, you know, what 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 do people what do people write and think about around strategy? And you know, how how should you consider some of these big um, unconstrained sort of strategy problems? You know, that that, that type of stuff. Um, which which was really great. I mean, that, that I learned a lot in each of those areas that has been phenomenally useful because you can now talk to um, you can now talk to accountants and have a meaningful conversation about at least. <laughs> high level right I'm, I'm certainly not an accountant and probably never will be but i can talk to accountants about balance sheets and pnl etc and it, it kind of makes sense i can talk to finance people and it kind of makes sense i can talk to legal people and it kind of makes sense so i'm never going to be a specialist in those areas and that's that's been that was i guess when i started the mba they were the types of things i wanted to get out of it um and did but i think while i was on the mba um i think i got an appreciation of some of the sort of softer skills courses uh, as, it, as it were, where, you know, more about different ways of managing people, thinking ways of thinking about culture in organizations, uh, leadership type styles and ways of ways of leading. And a, a lot of the value that came from that, some was from the course material, but honestly, a lot of it came from actually interacting with other people on the course, listening to their experiences and getting a lot of feedback, like a lot of practical exercises, a lot of feedback on you, on your style, and listening to how, how other people perceived you. And actually, learning to, I guess, process that feedback in constructive and productive ways. I think I think that was a phenomenally helpful aspect of the MBA, actually, which wasn't something when I went into it. I thought, oh yeah, I want to go into this to become more self-aware and, you know, be able to respond to feedback better and, you know, get people to tell me more stuff about my own style and perhaps use that for reflection on how I can improve. Um, although I think actually throughout the MBA process, I think that was one of the one of the most valuable things to come out of it. I see. I see. Very interesting. I think, yeah, that that's that's actually been like a good common theme, you know, because the softer functions is not something that people necessarily go into when they look at the education point of view. But I think it's really good, you know, surprising side benefit that comes out of it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I remember one of the pre-reads, there was a bunch of pre-reading books for my course, and one of them was the... Uh, some difficult difficult conversations book um getting to yes i think it's difficult conversations it's the uh um I, I i forget the authors of the book but if you type that into google amazon you're, you're gonna find it right away um and actually reading that was great i thought it was just a really good way of sort of like a model for thinking about difficult conversations that just teased out all the things that made difficult conversations difficult and sort of gave you some strategies for sort of thinking about each one. Not not too prescriptive, not rules-based, not one of these things where you learn a bunch of tricks um, to sort of get get yourself through something or get an outcome that you want, but just more about, hey, here's a model for thinking <laughs> thinking about these conversations mm-hmm. and thinking about why they're difficult and thinking about people, the people that you're talking to with these conversations. And I, I found that that type of thing actually phenomenally uh, phenomenally helpful. It's one of the most valuable books, I think, on the pre-reading list. Um, so I think from from the start, I sort of realized, oh, hang on, maybe maybe the things I'm going into this MBA for, like to learn about strategy and finance and uh, accounting and so on, maybe maybe there is actually a lot more to this that I can get out of it. And I think by, put, by, by putting that book on the reading list, I think that was the point that they were trying to make. Uh, and I think that, that point did actually resonate with me quite quite early on and i think as i say yeah i think i think if the people are going into an mba i really wouldn't underestimate um the the value of being able to you know think about some of the softer skills and at the same time get a whole variety of feedback through a whole variety of exercises from a whole variety of really smart people from different business functions it's super valuable yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. I completely, completely agree with that. Um, now, in terms of why Cambridge, um, it's it's worth asking the question. So, so obviously, you know, you actually spent a lot of time at Cambridge even before that. Did you ever consider trying a different place or a different university uh, instead of going back to Cambridge, or were there any specific reasons why you decided to go to Cambridge? Um, uh, I'll just be really honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> This one, I'm not sure it's going to help anyone who's actually listening, but I, I did my undergraduate degree at Cambridge, and then I went on and did my PhD at Cambridge, and then I worked <laughs> in Cambridge, and then I became a, um, a fellow Robinson College at, at Cambridge, and was actually a fellow and director of studies for computer science at Cambridge um, as well, while I was working in Cambridge. So I was super busy and very tied to Cambridge. Now, I, I did look at the judge, and I thought, wow, this looks like a really great course. The executive MBA had just been launched. And it looked great, and I had some friends who'd done it the previous year, and they'd had a great time, and they'd really enjoyed it. And of course, Cambridge is a great brand. Yeah, <laughs> it's really great. Um, honestly, I just put those things together and said, you know what, this just makes sense. I'm super busy. I've got a job in Cambridge. I'm already working at the university in Cambridge. I don't think I'll have time to do an MBA somewhere that's too far away because realistically those two existing commitments I had in Cambridge were just tying me to Cambridge. So the fact that a really great exec MBA program came up in Cambridge, I was like, this is just too good to be true. I'm just going to do, just going to do it at Cambridge. Um, so I perhaps had a lot of ties there. Um, you know, I, I, I did look at, I looked at LBS, um, uh, which looked like it had a, also had a great exec MBA course. Um, which I'm sure would have been perfectly fine, <laughs> also equally good. But in the end, I was like, this is, I'm super busy. I'm super tied to Cambridge. This Cambridge course looked great. It just makes sense to do it there. So I, so I did. Um, on the exec MBA course as well, I thought it was quite some nice features of Cambridge. Um, the, you sort of do one, one weekend a month as opposed to an LBS, at least when I was looking, it was one weekend in two. And that has an interesting consequence because it makes the Cambridge course more accessible to a wider international range of people who are willing to fly over once a month to England from the far corners of the world, mm. um, but are not willing to perhaps fly in uh, once every two weeks. So I think the international diversity on the Cambridge course was excellent, partly as a result of that, which also suited my schedule as well. Um, but it, 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 was, it was really a mix of just the fact that there was, there was a great course in Cambridge just coming up and... At the same time, I was very tied to Cambridge, so I, I didn't do, I, I would be lying if I said I did a full survey <laughs> of various international options which are available, and I'm sure there are many great ones like INSEAD and, um, you know, over on the West Coast, Stanford and MIT and Yale and Harvard. I, I didn't do a full survey of, of those at all. I was I was tied to Cambridge. I, looked I mean, at Cambridge, Cambridge. London, Cambridge. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Cambridge is such a great brand, and and to be honest, it's it's, it's completely valid that you know it, it obviously made a lot more sense <laughs> um, to not discount a great brand like that. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was a really well taught course. Um, the the lecturers and professors at, at the judge were very engaging and very interesting. The people on the course were great, very diverse group of people um, who I was able to learn a lot from. Um, so, so the, yeah, the, the course was fantastic. Um, yeah, the fact that it was in Cambridge made it super convenient. Did you, did you have a family already back then, Richard? Yes. So okay. I had two, two, two kids as well, um, quite young, or one of them was quite young at the time. So that was yeah. an addition. So relocating would have been very, very, I mean, you, 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 you would have had to be like really convinced not to be in Cambridge then. <laughs> to be honest, it wasn't even in my consideration set. I'll be very honest with you. <laughs> okay. I didn't even, and, and I don't feel bitter about that. It wasn't like, 
you know, I felt like my family stopped me making the choice I wanted to make. It just, we'd already made a set of choices, which I'd already just taken a bunch of things out of my consideration set knowingly and quite happily. Um, so I never really considered doing anything but stay in England to do this just because of the constraints with the family already being tied to Cambridge through two other big commitments, etc. So I, yeah, I considered London, I considered um, Cambridge and ended up settling in Cambridge. One thing I would say though is I wouldn't over rotate on rankings when you're making a decision about NBA. You know, the, the way that rankings are, are done and organized doesn't necessarily correlate to what you're going to get out of it as a student, either in terms of your own educational benefits, personal development benefits, or what you're going to get out of it for your career. Um, so I, I wouldn't go crazy looking at looking at rankings too much. I'd think more about the course itself, the quality of the teaching, the the, the, the diversity of the class and the types of people that you're going to meet um, in, in the class, I think are much more important factors to consider with respect to your individual position than actually looking at some aggregated ranking of stuff in some kind of a table. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. In fact, um, you know, I mentioned on the show a few times, I got into Imperial College, but besides it, I also got into University of California in, in the US. And it, it was a choice between a US and a UK, and UK is closer to home, and that's India, so that was my consideration. Although in terms of ranking, it's some people, people may argue that a college in US would have been better but yeah it, it, like you correctly mentioned it's it's it comes down to what you want to try and get out of the MBA and not necessarily in terms of a couple of ranks up or down yeah exactly i mean like the rankings are very fixed and the, like there might be some people whose individual goals are directly aligned with what the rankings are assessing in which case great like they're super relevant to you um but i suspect that that's probably the minority of people and for a lot of people what they want to get out of it varies quite widely and, and therefore, you should evaluate the different characteristics of the course according to your own individual merits rather than taking some other linear weighted function that the person that put the rankings together has come up with. Yeah, absolutely. So considering the fact that, you know, you had good ties with Cambridge and you were, were you the director of studies even back then when you were doing your MBA? Yes, it was a very bizarre situation. <laughs> I think actually broke one of our databases in college. Like there was... <laughs> The idea that the same person could be a student and a fellow and a tutor <laughs> and a director of studies simultaneously, I think actually violated certain assumptions that had been made when the when the data model had been put together. <laughs> exactly. I was I was gonna ask, did you did you score really well in your examinations? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. No, there was certainly no uh, there was certainly no cheating or favoritism. <laughs> I did have a bizarre situation though, I had a graduate tutor. Who was a fellow? Who was also, of course, you know, I was also a fellow. So we had this kind of weird, um, weird thing. Yeah, there, 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 it created lots of weird um, edges in the graph that people assume would probably never exist. But it was, it was fine. Yeah, yeah. Because because the question I was also trying to go to is, you know, how did you stand as compared to your classmates or your peers? Were you one of the more experienced ones, or did you also have other classmates who were as experienced uh, as as you were when you were studying? Oh, so, yeah, certainly. I think in some ways, uh, I mean, I guess I was 32 when I started the NBA, a long time ago now, sadly. Um, and, you know, I'd say I was perhaps one of the younger people on the course on aggregate, maybe maybe slightly below average age. Um, a lot of people had a lot of career experience in a lot of different things um, and were super experienced. And I think I learned a lot by um, interacting with them, actually. So, I, I mean, I actually quite liked being one of the less experienced people on the course because I... <laughs> 
I felt that the uh, the the information and the gain the, the gaining from, like the, the gradient of experience was sort of flowing down towards me. So I felt I was benefiting quite a lot. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't feel like I was one of the more experienced people at all. I mean, I think I've had a perhaps somewhat unusual trajectory between sort of research and then you know, multiple different types of roles in different industries and so on. Although I guess all in tech, but I mean, like no one had quite the same career path or the same sequence of roles that I'd had. But in terms of overall level of experience, then certainly many people were way more experienced than I was. Hi guys, this is Avinash over here once again. Thank you for listening to the conversation so far. I hope you really enjoyed listening to Richard's experiences. It turns out that since we ended up speaking for a long time, I've split Richard's conversation into two parts. So what you heard right now was part one. There will be a part two where Richard talks a little bit more about his aspirations from the MBA and how his journey continued post-MBA. And also he'll try and give a few tips to you uh, about MBA and Cambridge specifically. So I hope to see you there again. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The MBA Jam. Now it's time for you to take action. Head over to the mbajam.com to listen to more episodes and discover great resources.